Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero. Hi, Catherine. Were you napping? Yep. That's why you're late. Everyone was messaging me and emailing me, and I was supposed to do an interview, but you know what I said? I value myself. (laughs) I think you learned the wrong lesson. Anyway, here's the question I have for you today. So back when we started talking, I remember we took this like walk one day. You were like, this is going to be a year. And you were like trying to break it to me really gently. You know, like this is not just a few months. This is not just a few weeks. This is a year. And that was like, okay, wow, weird. Got it. And then, you know, Fauci started talking about the vaccine, 12 to 18 months. And, you know, I kept hearing 12 to 18 months, 12 to 18 months. And I was like, okay. But in my mind, I started counting down. And I was like, well, it must be like now it must be like 11 to 15 months. Or like 10 to 16 months. And then I read the other day that the fastest a vaccine has ever been developed is four years. Yeah. And then today I read this story in the Times where they did this visualization of like how long it is actually going to take. And August 2021 is the most optimistic scenario. And it would require like everything to go right and for us to achieve scientific development at a pace we never have before in in all of human history. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. We don't want to Well, why didn't you tell me? Um oh, well, so I think the title of that episode was not a two week problem, at which point it was like a useful thing to say. I think on a lot of people's minds was, "Oh, we have to be in shelter for two weeks." Right. Um And the other coronavirus outbreaks that were similar to this, SARS and MERS, you know, we were able to contain using the exact same methods we're using now, and they burned out. Um, But we have, this virus has proven not containable in that way, just by its nature. I keep having to reframe this problem in my mind and sort of the scope of it. And I had gotten in my mind solidly 12 to 18 months. Like, I was like, okay. But... It sounds like that's not realistic. Yeah. So it looks actually instead like we're just going to have herd immunity by that point. I mean, that's the hope. Wait, so the vaccine is now irrelevant? No, no, no. Like it's we're still just going to have to do herd immunity? It's No, it's totally relevant. There, there will be some places where we have herd immunity. It seems like New York will be there. It, when will but, we get to herd immunity? That's that's a great question. Um, well, it depends on how how much social distancing we do, right? As one thing, I mean, the primary question right now is something we've talked about a little bit before, but the vac- the antibodies that we right, have found right. are actually widely prevalent in, in New York, in, in the right. city, something like in the teens of percentage of people. All we can say right now is that means you've been exposed. But if that proves that all or even most of those people have immunity, like in a lasting way for a year or two, that would mean we'd get up to a level of herd immunity before we would get a vaccine, even if we continue our social Why did no one ever tell me this? Like, why did I have to come to this conclusion on my own? The idea that we might actually, I thought we were trying to avoid having to get to herd immunity because herd immunity means a ton of people die. 
Well, no, I mean, herd immunity is what you're trying to do via a vaccine, right? Um, well, but the vaccine doesn't kill anybody if you do <laughs> yeah, it ideally. through the right process. Yeah, I, that's the moral dilemma right now is how quickly do you roll things out? You introduce a potentially dangerous vaccine rather widely, or do you wait a long time and make sure it's completely safe and effective? <laughs> Not to be a caricature of myself and, like, say I'm having an emotion, but I've been feeling really numb recently, and, like, I just noticed I'm I'm having a sadness. Mm. Like, I'm having a feeling right now. Yeah. Just the, the realization that, like, we might actually get to herd immunity before there's a vaccine. I, I don't know why I didn't understand that before. Um, yeah, I think we're going to be, at least for the next year or two, focusing really heavily on how to live and begin to have an economy while being extremely meticulous about hand washing and distancing wherever and everywhere possible and using protective equipment. Oh my God. I haven't felt this way since the beginning. I don't know what's going on with me. Anyway, okay, enough about my feelings. So we're going to have to, you know, we're in New York. It's still on total kind of lockdown. We don't know when it'll open back up. And I think, I assume we were kind of waiting for some sort of like development <laughs> or more information to, to open back up. But many states are just starting to open back up because they're like, we can't do this. And at first I was thinking, that's crazy. Like, they're going to kill a bunch of people. But if you're saying we have to live with this, we mm. like we got to figure out how to do this, right? So whether or not that herd immunity comes by way of exposure to the virus in the world or via a vaccine, this virus has proven that it is not simply going to take off into outer space or cease to exist, you know? So we have to ha train our bodies to be protected from it. Right. But we're also not going to be in lockdown forever, which is why it's an interesting case study that's happening now in certain states that are just reopening. Like Georgia last week did it. Amanda Mole has written about this. Amanda loves Georgia. Amanda loves Georgia. And I would love to discuss that with her. Yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, let's call Amanda. Okay. Can you hear me? Hey. Hey, Amanda. Hey, for some reason, it's got me on speaker again. Oh, no. Speaker's no good. I think I, I, think I figured out how to fix it. I'm okay. a good problem solver. <laughs> okay. That's what we need right now. Yeah. So, Amanda, we've got a problem for you. Coronavirus. Yeah, just coronavirus, question mark, question mark, question mark. Mm. Yeah. So that and is why <laughs> that is my question for you. <laughs> And you know, it's weird they're coming to me because because I I don't know anything about science. <laughs> well, you know, you're such an astute observer of culture, and that's just as relevant as like microbial science right now in terms of how to respond to this, right? Right. A, a big, you know, the coronavirus is the biggest problem, but an equally, perhaps equally big problem is how people act around. Uh, a pandemic. And, uh, you know, public health is something we all do together, uh, which means that individual behavior and the behavior of groups is is pretty crucial. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a specific group, the good people of Georgia. Yes, my, my home state of Georgia. First of all, tell me about Georgia. Where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up in suburban Atlanta, 
Uh, my dad is from Georgia. He's from rural Georgia. My mom grew up in Atlanta. I'm a native, a product of the, the state's public schools all the way through college. Uh, and, and a big uh, lover of the state and of my fellow Georgians. Am I, am I doing this right? Um, <clears throat> go dogs. Go dogs. Did I do that right? right? Yeah. Thank you. It somehow sounded much more natural when Amanda said it. <laughs> I have more practice. Okay. Um, what do you specifically love or miss about Georgia? I mean, I think I miss Georgia like like everybody away from home misses home. A familiarity with with the people there, with the culture. I miss the food, honestly. What's your favorite Georgian dish? Uh, I miss good pulled pork. Mm. That That is a yes. little bit uh, difficult to find in New York, although yeah. it's getting better. Uh, I actually just got back to my apartment from running around the block to pick up a pork shoulder from a friend of mine who had ordered it for me in her in her butcher shop order so that I can make pulled pork this weekend. Oh my god. Oh my god. What a what a treat. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it. Tell me what's going on in Georgia and how people are reacting to it. Well, uh the situation in Georgia right now is that a lot of businesses, especially service businesses in the South, have been sort of abruptly reopened by Governor Brian Kemp. Um, on Friday, the state reopened gyms, churches, barbershops, hair salons, nail salons, things like that. And then on Monday, uh, restaurants and movie theaters followed suit. I think it's important to note that, that a host of other states are, are contemplating similar moves, Oklahoma, Colorado, um, and then another wave of states sort of close behind them. But Georgia was the, was the first state to announce it and the first state to get those businesses back open. And also, I, I think it's notable and I think it took a lot of people by surprise because people, a lot of people within the state did not expect it to happen when it happened. A mm-hmm. lot of uh, mayors, local leaders, uh, Republicans even in the state legislature, I, I think were sort of taken aback by how quickly that announcement was made. Yeah. Do people really think, oh, my business is going to open and, and be viable right now? You know, I mean, how many businesses are operating with like a 50% margin to spare if their business goes down that far? Just even if half the people are willing to come out and, and um, get their hair cut again. Right. This is the concern that I heard from a lot of small business owners that I spoke with is that Georgia's reopening has some safety standards that small businesses and proprietors have to adhere to. Uh, for restaurants, that means you have to uh, drop your restaurant's capacity by 50%, remove tables, let people sit further apart. The food service industry has notoriously low margins, even in ideal times, even with people packed into a restaurant as, as closely as they can be. Um, and the indication so far, you know, we're only a couple days into the restaurant reopening, but the indication so far is that not many restaurants have reopened their dining rooms. Uh, there are places still doing takeout for places where that makes sense uh, and where they have the infrastructure to do that. But I, I think most places cannot be profitable and adhere to the safety restrictions that the governor has put in place, uh, especially restaurants, because if they've been closed for a month, they have to stock up thousands of dollars of supplies of food. And to take on that expense while you're having to you know, buy protective gear for staff and keep them covered in that every day, 
it is it is just an onerous uh, requirement for for some types of businesses. I think salons are having I, I think a little bit of an easier time because they don't have the, the perishable supply issue, um, and a lot of hairstylists are uh, freelancers or 1099 contractors so they can if they want to come in and cut a few people a day or something like that they don't have the same expenditure on supplies that would make it as starkly unprofitable as restaurants would um so i think that that community is a little bit more amenable to the option uh, and the hairstylists i spoke with are sort of mostly taking a wait and see look at this but they all knew people who had decided to reopen hmm. it seems like what you're describing is less, you know, if you hear like, oh, Georgia's reopening, it's like they're back to normal and like definitely every, you know, that the cases are going to spike again and it's going to be a catastrophe. But it sounds like what you're describing is not that extreme at all. And if most of the people in the state like don't even agree with opening up, like, you know, I guess what are the pros and cons of this approach? From a public health perspective, the I spoke to someone from Georgia State University in Atlanta, and he said that the, the the biggest problem he saw, just from like a contagion perspective, is that a lot of the businesses that reopen are high touch. So in order for someone to get their hair cut, the stylist has or the barber has to be sort of up in their personal space. You cannot get a socially distanced right. haircut. Right. Uh, s- same with a manicure. Same with somebody serving you a plate of food. They're going to have to lean over you to pass food to the person sitting next to you. So you you end up in a situation where a lot of the businesses that can come back are putting people in particularly dangerous situations, even you know relative to all the other types of businesses there might be. And then you also bring in a group of people who are particularly vulnerable to some of the uh, adverse effects of the coronavirus. The service industry is primarily made up of people of color, especially in Georgia, which is a really diverse state. You get mostly people of color, mostly people from uh, working class or poor backgrounds who have poor access to health care in even the best of times. Uh, Georgia has no Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a lot of people who sweep out salons or, or serve drinks or, you know, bus tables who are, uh, in a situation where they can't get healthcare if they need it, they don't have paid time off. So I think that the particular way this has been done is particularly dangerous, even if it's possible in some places to bring some businesses back. Um, the way this has been approached makes it onerous in a way that it doesn't have to be. Why is it being approached this way? Um, that is an excellent question. And one that I put, posed to everyone who I talked to, um, there are various theories. Um, the official explanation is that from the state government and from uh, Governor Kemp is that uh, these people want to get back to work. These small businesses want to reopen, that it can be done safely with protective measures and that we can get income back to people who uh, who need it. The less generous explanation is that there has been pressure from business owners who are powerful within the state on the state government to make this move so that they can put people back to work. And also from a fiscal perspective for the state, if a business reopens and an, an employee of that business decides not to go back to work because they fear infection or because they are at heightened risk because of existing health problems, that person from what anybody can tell about this order, that person is no longer eligible for state unemployment benefits. 
So mm-hmm. it saves the state some money because mm-hmm. if, you know, a, if a particular worker is not in favor of this, it doesn't really matter as long as their boss is, you know? Yeah. I've heard that argument that you're really just trying to get people off of a safety net. And I mean, yeah, people are going to want, if you don't have a substantial safety net and you also have a government that's trying to reopen things so that it can, you know, not feel the responsibility for people's welfare and income and instead say, Hey, if you can't work, then that, or if your business fails, that's on you. We told you you could open. Right. Yeah, I think that there is uh, there is a vested interest by those in control of these policies for the risk to be assumed by individuals making choices instead of paying attention to how the reopening is set up to be coercive in those choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the 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 order does not force anyone to reopen, of course, but if a business does reopen and it's in your options are either go back to work and uh, risk infection or stay home and no longer be eligible for unemployment, then that is, that is not a, an equal decision. That is, that is a, a decision that the state has seemingly purposefully weighted toward you going back to work and risking infection uh, because it's no longer willing to support your uh, pursuit of safety at home. Um, And then Georgia also has some unique uh, fiscal issues that might be playing into this uh, that I that I heard mentioned by people as a possibility for the reopening is that in 2014 2015 uh, the state amended its constitution to cap the state income tax at 6% uh, and that means that it would be difficult to raise taxes to fund further unemployment at the moment. Like right now, because you'd have to change the state constitution, right? You'd have to reamend the state constitution, okay. and the the state Republican Party, which controls the state government, is not amenable to that. Um, so you'd have to get over the logistical issues and the ideological issues to raise more money to deepen the unemployment pool, yeah. uh, to pay out benefits, and that is just really hard to do. Here's a question for both of you: Given the inevitability that we we can't stay locked down until there's a vaccine, it's just not going to happen. Um, what is the appropriate way to think about reopening? Um, I think that the most solid way to approach this right now is to just listen to public health leaders. Uh, and, and right now their recommendations are two continuous weeks of declining infection rates, declining death rates, things like that. Uh, you need really, really widespread testing. I think you need to to test people whether or not they have symptoms. I think you need testing in all parts of the state and in a state like Georgia and in most states in America, getting testing accessibility to people who have poor access to resources in general is going to be difficult. But I think that that is essential um, to bring people back. I think you just need a lot more of everything, basically. Yeah. Jim, what do you, do, do you agree? Is that the, is that the basic shape? I'm still forming my thoughts on how we can do it efficiently, but I know the focus is mainly on equipping systems for massive hygiene practices. Like there probably will be hand sanitizer on every subway car and, and there should be masks publicly available and there'll be social enforcement of rules too. You know, you know that there already are in Brooklyn. You get yelled at if you're not wearing a face covering by people on the street. So 
I think if you if you're in a place where that can be led by social justice, <laughs> social stigmatization, and, and that sort of thing, um, the legal needs to actually enforce closures will be different than if you see people who are just engaging in straight up dangerous practices, and the only way to prevent that is to make it illegal and close it down. Hmm. I mean, I have one last question for you. What does it feel like as a person who loves Georgia to be watching Georgia from afar right now? It's stressful. I mean, because you sort of have a, a, a two level reaction to it. You have the personal level in which, you know, my elderly parents and my asthmatic little brother still live there, are still trying to, you know, get groceries and uh, stay safe and not get infected. Uh, and then you watch everybody else talk about Georgia, talk about the people there who really don't have an idea of what the state is like, what the, what right. the people who live there are like, uh, and have people assume that they're, you know, just poor hicks who can't self-govern doing this to themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> If there were ever time to be able to understand how a centralized government might not be fully indicative of the character of the people it serves, um, it seems like this might be a time that that would be understandable. Right. I don't think that same nuance or courtesy gets bended to Southerners very often, um, which is why I wanted to write about it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Thank you for talking to us. And um, <clears throat> oh no, she's gonna do it, isn't she? Go dogs! Go dogs! Woohoo! <laughs> We'd love to have you again. Of course, I'd love to come back. Please talk to us. We're we're very we can't, we can't tired talk of speaking to, each other to anymore. just each other. <laughs> Our dynamic has devolved into a series of insults. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> of course. Good luck with that pulled pork. Let me know how that goes. Oh, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Fingers crossed that it, that it works out. Stay well. Y'all too. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Okay. Bye. Um, well, I'm going to go practice my sports-related rallying cries so they come out more naturally. What are your, some, some of your other favorite ones from just some of your favorite teams? Uh, yeah. Um, there's... um. The 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 lizards. Mm-hmm. Um, this show was produced today by Alvin Melleth with help from Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. You can uh, keep the questions coming at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com. We'll answer more soon. And if you like the show, tell your friends. You can write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already, and that will help more people find the show. We'll talk tomorrow. That would be great. Looking forward to it. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Until then, bye. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.